You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode number 71 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. With this episode, we're going to take y'all back to the mountains of Northwest Virginia. We've already spent some time there, of course, back in episodes 43 and 44, when we talked about the Philippi races in early June 1861, and then the Battle of Rich Mountain, which took place on July 11th. Those early federal victories out in northwestern Virginia made a hero of George McClellan. Although the true worth of McClellan's leadership in the field during that campaign is uh, open to question, nevertheless, because of the perception that McClellan had put in a brilliant performance, Congress on July 16th passed a resolution of thanks to the young general for his service in defense of the Union. And less than a week later, In the aftermath of the Confederate victory at Manassas, McClellan would be called up to the big leagues. He would be called upon to come to Washington and assume command of the main Union Army. But while the results of those early fights out in northwestern Virginia propelled George McClellan on to bigger and better things, the Confederate forces in the area were left scrambling to recover from the defeats they had suffered at the hands of the Yankees. As y'all will recall, because of the Federals' victory at Rich Mountain, the Confederate commander, Brigadier General Robert Garnett, had abandoned his position at Laurel Hill, but then he was killed a few days later during the subsequent retreat. Garnett thus has the unfortunate distinction of being the first general officer on either side to be killed in action during the Civil War. The loss of Garnett, who had been considered an officer of great potential, was a major blow to the Confederates. And after his death, his battered command continued its retreat, moving beyond Cheat Mountain, essentially all but giving up the western approaches to the Shenandoah Valley. Upon receiving the sad news of Garnett's death, Robert E. Lee directed Brigadier General Henry R. Jackson of Georgia to assume temporary command of the Army of the Northwest on July 14th. At that time, the little Confederate army was composed of about 2,500 men. A week later, Lee dispatched Brigadier General William Wing Loring to assume command, superseding Jackson. In the summer of 1861, William Wing Loring was a soldier of considerable reputation. Loring's family had moved from North Carolina to Florida when he was a small child, and as a teenager, Loring joined the Florida militia and fought in the Second Seminole War, rising to the rank of second lieutenant. His parents then sent him north to Washington, D.C. to complete his education. After attending Georgetown College, he studied law and was admitted to the Florida Bar. 
Loring took an interest in politics and was elected to the Florida State Legislature in the early 1840s. At the outbreak of the Mexican War, Loring received a captain's commission and commanded a company of mounted rifles. He was promoted to major shortly before Winfield Scott's daring campaign to capture Mexico City. On the march to the enemy capital, Loring took part in all of the major engagements, receiving two brevet promotions. And then at the Battle of Chapultepec, he was wounded and lost his left arm. Nevertheless, at the end of the war, Loring remained in the regular army and was promoted to lieutenant colonel in March 1848. With his regiment, Loring made an epic march from Texas to Oregon in 1849, and he then assumed command of the Department of Oregon. He remained there for two years before being transferred to Texas in 1851. He was promoted to colonel in 1858. At the end of 1860, Loring assumed command of the Department of New Mexico, headquartered at Santa Fe. During March 1861, after the secession of Texas, he grew increasingly concerned about the security of his department. But at the same time, he was wrestling with his own decision about whether to follow Florida out of the Union. He he expressed views disapproving of secession, But the impending separation of North Carolina from the Union apparently decided the matter for him, and Loring resigned his commission on May 13, 1861. A week later, he was commissioned a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. Loring arrived in Monterey to assume command of the Army of the Northwest on July 22nd, with instructions from Robert E. Lee to, quote, prevent the advance of the enemy and restrain him on the other side of the Allegheny Ridge by occupying such passes as in your judgment will affect the object, end quote. In other words, Loring was to keep the Federals away from the western approaches to the Shenandoah Valley, because if the Union Army operating in western Virginia advanced over into the Shenandoah, it would be disastrous for the Confederates. You see, if the Yankees could drive along the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike and push east into the valley and occupy Stanton, they would be able to cut the Virginia Central Railroad and block the much-needed supplies that flowed from the farms of the fertile Shenandoah Valley to the vital theater of eastern Virginia. And so, besides giving Loring command of the diminutive Army of the Northwest, Lee also assigned him control over the forces led by Brigadier Generals John B. Floyd and Henry Wise, who were both political generals operating at other locations in western Virginia. To Loring, Lee emphasized the importance of holding the pass at Cheat Mountain, which was the key to controlling the important Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike. But the trouble was that, unknown to Lee, when he gave those instructions to Loring, the Federals already had troops on top of Cheap Mountain. For the next few minutes, we want to take a bit of a detour away from Cheap Mountain and look a bit farther west in western Virginia to the Kanawha Valley region. Because while the Confederates were changing commanders and reorganizing, McClellan announced on July 21st that it was his intention to carry military operations into the Kanawha Valley with the hope of completing his conquest of western Virginia. And just so you guys know, but Kanawha is spelled K-A-N-A-W-H-A. And we mentioned it once before on the podcast, 
and then we're told that we had pronounced it wrong. So this time we watched some local news footage and also called a couple of local places there. And as near as we can tell, there in West Virginia, despite how it's spelled, they seem to just pronounce it Kana. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, if you're from that area and still think we're pronouncing it wrong, well, a thousand apologies, but we're just doing the best we can. Okay. So while the Confederates were changing commanders and reorganizing, McClellan announced on July 21st that it was his intention to carry military operations into the Kanawha Valley with the hope of completing his conquest of western Virginia. As part of this plan, a Union force under Brigadier General Jacob Cox was already pushing Henry Wise's Confederates out of the Kanawha region. Wise had taken Charleston and advanced west toward the Ohio River in late June, and it was in response to that threat that McClellan dispatched Cox and his brigade to Point Pleasant on the Ohio at the mouth of the Kanawha. Cox arrived there on July 10th. On July 22nd, the day after the federal disaster along the banks of Bull Run near Manassas, McClellan received a telegram from Washington. It read, quote, Circumstances make your presence here necessary. Charge Rosecrans or some other general with your present department and come hither without delay. End quote. Two days later, McClellan turned over operations in western Virginia to William Rosecrans, who you guys remember from episode number 44 and his key role at the Battle of Rich Mountain. Anyway, after taking over from McClellan, Rosecrans prepared to reinforce Cox and embark on a new campaign in the Kanawha Valley. And we're mentioning all of this because it eventually led to the Battle of Carnifex Ferry on September 10th. There, Union troops led by Rosecrans fought against Confederate forces led by John B. Floyd. And as we've already mentioned, both Wise and Floyd were ex-governors of Virginia and Floyd had also served as Secretary of War in James Buchanan's administration. And because of his treacherous behavior while serving as Secretary of War, some of you may recall how back then I referred to Floyd as a traitorous Rich. Act. Rich. You know. Anyway, um, Floyd and Wise, uh, besides both being unfit for military command, they both absolutely detested each other. And as Rosecrans advanced and as battle approached, Wise dragged his feet in supporting Floyd. And as a result, on September 10th, Floyd fought the Federals all day long at Carnifex Ferry on the Gauley River, but then he was forced to abandon his position and withdraw that night. Well, both Rosecrans and Floyd claimed victory at Carnifex Ferry, and although a minor battle and not entirely decisive in outcome, it clearly was a strategic success for the Federals since they retained control of the Kanawha Valley and most of the western part of western Virginia. Carnifex Ferry is also interesting, at least to us, because of the large number of present or future general officers who participated in the battle, 15 Yankees and 5 Confederates. In addition, fighting with the 23rd Ohio that day in western Virginia was a future Supreme Court Justice, Stanley Matthews, and no less than two future U.S. Presidents, Rutherford B. Hayes and William McKinley. And then if you're interested in looking into that battle in more detail, you can hunt up the book 
September Blood, The Battle of Carnifex Ferry by Terry Lowry. Even before George McClellan left Western Virginia for Washington, the Federals were entrenching the white top area of Cheat Mountain. Soldiers from Indiana and Ohio began fortifying the position on July 16th. They initially set to work clearing several acres of forest on each side of the turnpike. One soldier remembered the spot as, quote, a splendid 20-acre farm averaging 10 rocks to one blade of grass, end quote. The Yankees built their fortification on the farm of an elderly mountaineer named White, thus the name White Top for the area. Spruce trees were cut down, clearing a field of fire around the fort. Earthen ramparts, 14 feet high, were thrown up. A blockhouse was built inside the place, designed to act as a small citadel for the Union soldiers defending the fort. After McClellan's departure, and as Rosecrans prepared to reinforce Cox and embark on a new campaign in the Kanawha Valley, Brigadier General Joseph J. Reynolds was placed in direct command of the Federal forces in northwest Virginia at Cheat Mountain and the Tigart Valley. Reynolds presided over the construction of the fortifications at Cheat Mountain, and also the ones nearby at Camp Elkwater, which commanded the Huttonsville-Huntersville Turnpike. Meanwhile, for the Confederates, northwestern Virginia was too important a place to surrender without an attempt to recover it. So in late July, Robert E. Lee departed Richmond for the mountains, sent out there by order of Jefferson Davis. In his classic biography of Lee, Douglas Southall Freeman writes that, quote, On the morning of July 28th, Lee started from Richmond to perform his first field duty for the Confederacy. It was not an impressive departure. His only military companions were John A. Washington and Walter Taylor. He had no more than two private attendants, Meredith, his cook, and Perry, another Negro, who was now acting as Lee's body servant. His baggage was of the smallest proportions. Many a brigadier, starting for the front, had a far larger entourage and a more ostentatious leave-taking. It was not precisely to the command of an army that Lee was going. As the president's confidential military advisor, he was being sent to western Virginia. His mission was to coordinate, not to direct operations. End quote. As that passage from Freeman's biography says, western Virginia would be Robert E. Lee's first field duty for the Confederacy. Up until this time, he had... First, seen to the organization, training, and supply of Virginia's state forces, and then after the Old Dominion joined the Confederacy, Lee had continued serving in a supporting role, acting as Jefferson Davis's military advisor. Davis held Lee in high regard, but the advisory role could not have been an easy one for Robert E. Lee, not just because of the Confederate president's notoriously prickly personality, but also because Jefferson Davis, as he would show throughout the course of the war, preferred to act as his own Secretary of War and General-in-Chief. Well, as for Davis sending Lee out to Western Virginia, it was really because, after Garnett's death, the Confederate commanders in the area, Loring, Wise, and Floyd, had been working at cross-purposes, rather than presenting a united front to resist the Federal Army's operations in the area. And so, although Lee wouldn't actually have any command authority over them, 
Davis was still hoping Lee could act as mediator or as a facilitator, working with the difficult personalities involved who hopefully wouldn't feel insulted or threatened by Lee's presence and get them to coordinate their actions in obstructing the enemy's efforts in Western Virginia. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Lee traveled to the mountains with just his cook, Meredith, his manservant, Perry, and two aides, Lieutenant Colonel Washington and Captain Taylor. One Confederate soldier serving in Western Virginia upon seeing Lee for the first time said, quote, He wore the uniform of a federal colonel, his old rank. His hair was very dark with only a chance of gray hair. He was closely shaven and had a square-cut coal-black mustache. There was kindness in his expression, most unusual in one possessing eyes so dark and brilliant. He was dignified and courtly, without any of the auteur naturally acquired by command. End quote. Many observers throughout the war would remark upon Lee's dignified manner and courtliness, of course, but of perhaps more interest to us at this point is the fact that, as you can tell from that description, Robert E. Lee, at the time of his arrival in western Virginia, had not yet grown his iconic gray beard. It would only be during this campaign, while he was out in the field as the weather in the mountains turned colder, that Lee would grow the beard that we associate so closely with his image. Unfortunately for Lee, none of the Confederate commanders in Western Virginia knew him as Jefferson Davis did, and their lack of appreciation of Lee's leadership style undermined his efforts to coordinate the actions of their separate commands. As we mentioned before, ex-governors Wise and Floyd detested each other, and so didn't take kindly to Lee's efforts to get them to actually cooperate. For example, on August 8th, Lee wrote to Wise, saying, quote, In regard to the request to separate the commands of Generals Floyd and yourself and to assign to each respective fields of action, it would, in my opinion, be contrary to the purpose of the President and destroy the prospect of the success of the campaign in the Kanawha District. Our enemy is so strong at all points that we can only hope to give him an effective blow by a concentration of our forces. That this may be done surely and rapidly, their movements and actions must be controlled by one head. I hope, therefore, that as soon as your command can be moved forward, in the preparation for which I feel assured no time will be lost, that you will join General Floyd and take that part in the campaign which may be assigned your brigade. End quote. Well, that gives you a bit of insight into the problems Lee faced with regard to Wise and Floyd, and also Lee's awkward position in that, without actual command authority, he hesitated to actually issue orders, but instead chose to offer strongly worded suggestions. On August 21st, Lee would again have to lecture Wise on the benefits of cooperation. But as we already know from our brief detour to cover the action over at Carnifex Ferry, Lee's admonitions obviously didn't sink in, since there in early September, Wise would obstinately drag his feet with regard to sending help to Floyd, even as Floyd was preparing to battle Rosecrans there along the Gauley River. Besides the difficulties he faced trying to get Wise and Floyd to cooperate, Robert E. Lee also found that working with Loring was not easy. 
Loring had outranked Lee in the regular army back before the war, and Loring, operating here in the field in western Virginia, apparently resented the arrival of Lee, who was now his nominal superior. Lee took great pains to preserve the touchy Loring's goodwill, even to the point of establishing a separate headquarters at Valley Mountain, and with great courtesy, framing his orders in the form of suggestions, as he did with Wise and Floyd. In addition to the difficulties he faced working with the local commanders, Lee also faced problems with regard to the condition of the troops. After his arrival in the area of operations, he visited the camps of the soldiers and found them disorganized, ill-equipped, and sick. He moved about, visiting and encouraging the men, but the overall condition of the soldiers distressed him greatly. In early August, Lee wrote to his wife about his own command challenges and about the pitiful condition of so many of the Confederate soldiers in western Virginia. He said, quote, The points from which we can be attacked are numerous, and their means are unlimited, so we must be on the alert. My uneasiness on these points brought me out here. It is so difficult to get our people, unaccustomed to the necessities of war, to comprehend and promptly execute the measure required for the occasion. The soldiers everywhere are sick, the measles are prevalent throughout the whole army, and you know that disease leaves unpleasant results, attacks on the lungs, typhoid, etc., especially in camp where the accommodations for the sick are poor." The miserable weather in the region also did nothing to encourage Lee or make things easier for the southern troops. In a later letter to his daughters, Lee wrote, quote, My precious daughters, it rains here all the time, literally. There has not been sunshine enough since my arrival to dry my clothes. Perry is my washerman, and socks and towels suffer. But the worst of the rain is that the ground has become so saturated with water that the constant travel on the roads has made them almost impassable, so that I cannot get up sufficient supplies for the troops to move. End quote. From his headquarters at Valley Mountain, Lee, accompanied by his son Rooney's cavalry, was active personally in scouting the terrain and the federal positions, and especially seeking routes of approach to the summit of Cheat Mountain that would allow the Confederates to surprise the enemy entrenched there. And so, despite the difficulties and challenges he faced, Robert E. Lee was determined to seize the initiative by attacking Cheat Mountain and wresting that important position away from the Federals. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous reign of terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today, or simply search for the French Revolution. Since, technically, Loring was in command of the Confederate forces in the area, Lee had to content himself with urging Loring to make an attack on the Yankees atop Cheat Mountain. But Lee found Loring reluctant to mount any sort of offensive operation. Besides, perhaps, some resentment at what he viewed as Lee's interference, Loring apparently believed the federal position at Cheat Mountain to be quite formidable, so he instead devised a plan to advance north up the Huttonsville-Huntersville Turnpike and attack the enemy troops who were at Camp Elkwater near Huttonsville, and in that way sneak behind and isolate the federal garrison atop Cheat Mountain. Actually, though, there were only about 300 Union soldiers from Ohio and Indiana on Cheat Mountain, commanded by Colonel Nathan Kimball of the 14th Indiana. Kimball's outpost on the summit of Cheat Mountain was part of Brigadier General Joseph J. Reynolds' 1st Brigade, and the main strength of that force actually lay west of the summit along the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike and then also around Camp Elkwater. Not knowing the truth of the enemy's weakness atop Cheat Mountain, Lee approved Loring's plan, but then significantly revised it so that it morphed into an ambitious, probably overly ambitious, scheme involving the coordinated actions of no less than six separate columns of Confederate soldiers. Lee's plan called for the first column to start its march on Monday, September 9th, and then by dawn on the morning of the 12th, all six columns were to be in position and ready to launch their assaults simultaneously. Three columns were to surround Camp Elkwater, with Brigadier General Daniel S. Donaldson and his brigade marching around the Union camp to a ridge above Becky's Creek, overlooking the enemy's left rear. Loring's troops and the brigade of Colonel Jesse Burks would advance northward down the Tigart Valley in two columns. Once in position near Camp Elkwater, they would await the signal to begin their attack the signal being the sound of the guns on Cheat Mountain. For that assault on Cheat Mountain, three other rebel columns were to converge there. Brigadier General Samuel R. Anderson from Loring's command was assigned the task of cutting the Federal's line of retreat. Colonel Albert Rust of the 3rd Arkansas, who had found a rugged but passable route that led to a point just south of the enemy works atop the mountain, Rust force would move through the wilderness west of the summit and reach that position he had scouted earlier. 
Brigadier General H.R. Jackson's brigade would approach the enemy position from the southeast along the Stanton Turnpike and support Rust's attack. When Rust launched his assault, that was to be the signal for the other five Confederate columns to start their attacks. So, as you can see, Lee's plan was complicated. I mean, really complicated, with a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that could go wrong. Uh, Such a plan would be ambitious even if all six columns had had radios to communicate and coordinate their movements, uh, which of course they didn't. No radios in the Civil War. Well, anyway, um, incredibly, as dawn approached on the wet, chilly morning of Thursday, September 12th, each of the Confederate columns had actually reached its designated spot undetected by the enemy. Everything, however, hinged upon the attack of Russ's 1,600 men on Cheat Mountain, for the sound of his guns would signal everyone else to attack. Rust had had difficulty reaching his position. His men had to move cross-country over rugged, wooded, and broken terrain. At one point, they had to wade waist-deep through the ice-cold Cheat River for nearly half a mile, and then it rained all night long as they slipped and slid through the mud on the mountainside and neared the Federal Fort. By the morning of the 12th, Russ men were in position, but after two days out in the elements, they were soaked, hungry, and bone-tired. It was the practice of the Federals atop Cheat Mountain that at the break of day each morning, a small detachment would head down the road to Huttonsville for necessary supplies and then return in the afternoon. The morning of Thursday, September 12th, was no different, and that day three wagons set off from the fort. Not long after their departure, a Union cavalryman also set off down the mountain carrying dispatches. The courier had only proceeded a short distance when he discovered the wagons standing abandoned in the middle of the road with signs of struggle evident in the surrounding mud. He immediately turned his horse around and galloped back to the fort to raise the alarm. Despite the importance of the need to surprise the enemy garrison atop Cheat Mountain, when some of Rust, hungry, and tired men saw the wagons coming down the road from the fort, they couldn't resist breaking cover and capturing them, hoping they would find provisions in them. The Federal soldiers that Rust's men seized proceeded to spin quite a tale for their captors, gladly telling the Southerners that the position atop Cheat Mountain was on alert and garrisoned by between 4,000 and 5,000 men. Upon receiving this disturbing piece of news, Rust set off to personally reconnoiter the enemy works, but he didn't have the experience or skill necessary to expose the Federal soldiers' tall tale for the lie that it was. Meanwhile, when Colonel Kimball, commanding the 300 Union soldiers actually atop the mountain, when he received word that his supply wagons had been ambushed by an unknown enemy force, he sent out a small patrol to investigate. And when those men skirmished with the nearby Confederates, well, that was enough to convince Rust that the element of surprise had been lost and that he was, in fact, greatly outnumbered by the vast enemy host he imagined to be entrenched atop the mountain. And so defeated by that small handful of Federal skirmishers, Rust decided to retreat. Of the other two columns slated to take part in the Cheat Mountain part of Lee's plan, Anderson's force was only briefly involved in tangling with the enemy, 
while the men of Jackson's brigade stood inactive since they never even heard the sounds of the limited skirmishing that did take place. The other Confederate columns, the ones slated to assault the Federals at Camp Elkwater, that morning they waited in vain for the sounds of battle coming from Cheat Mountain, which would have been the signal for them to start their own attacks. As the morning wore on, though, the commanders of those other Confederate columns grew more and more worried and confused over the lack of the signal. Lee, who that morning had nearly been captured by a Union cavalry patrol as he rode to join Donelson's column, Lee realized something had gone wrong with the Cheat Mountain part of his plan, and so at 10 a.m. he ordered Donelson to withdraw and also sent word to the other columns to fall back. The next day, Friday the 13th, the Federal commander, Reynolds, sent reinforcements from Camp Elkwater up to Colonel Kimball on Cheat Mountain. Meanwhile, Robert E. Lee knew the day before was a lost opportunity, but he believed he could still salvage something in the way of an offensive move against the Yankees. So he sent out scouting parties to reconnoiter routes by which he might turn the enemy right at Elkwater. One such party of Confederates, containing Lee's son, Rooney, and Lee's aide, Lieutenant Colonel John Washington, went along the right branch of Elkwater Fork and ran into a Federal picket line. When the Federal soldiers opened fire on the Confederate horsemen, three bullets struck Washington, killing him. Rooney Lee's horse was shot from under him, but he was uninjured and managed to scramble atop Washington's horse and escape. Robert E. Lee mourned the death of the 30-year-old Washington. Not only had the officer been a favorite aide-de-camp, but he had been a distant relative. Falling in the service of the Confederacy, John Washington, the great-grandnephew of George Washington, would be the last of the Washingtons to reside at Mount Vernon. There was sporadic skirmishing over the next two days, resulting in a few casualties and prisoners for each side but Lee's cheap mountain campaign, such as it was, was over. With the weather turning as bad as the roads, and with supplies and morale low, Lee pulled back, and the initiative in the area remained with the Federals for the rest of 1861. As Lee left troops in the region to guard the eastern passes while he shifted men to the Kanawha Valley, he tried to put the best face possible on the cheap mountain operation, calling it a, quote, forced reconnaissance, end quote. And he reported that it had revealed weaknesses in the federal position that would be exploited, quote, at such a time and in such a manner as General Loring shall direct, end quote. But despite Lee's attempt to downplay the miscarriage of his plan, there was no escaping the fact that his debut in the field had been a dismal failure. Other minor actions occurred throughout the region over the next month or so, but Lee's hope of an all-out victory by coordinating the Confederate forces never became a reality. Lee's designs continued to be thwarted by the obstinacy of certain subordinates and the incompetence of others. And then Rosecrans didn't help matters any either, never giving Lee a real opportunity to exploit. At any rate, on October 30th, Lee left Western Virginia, never to return. 1861 ended with most of Western Virginia controlled by Union forces under Rosecrans' overall command. 
The Confederates' military failure in the region was one of the prime ingredients used by Unionists in their recipe for forming a new state out of the western counties of Virginia. Already in May of 1861, delegates from 25 western counties had shown up for a preliminary convention in Wheeling, where they decided to meet again in July. And so three weeks after the Battle of Rich Mountain, the Western Convention met again in Wheeling and took the first major steps to secede from Virginia and form a new state. We'll do an episode sometime on just how West Virginia was created during the Civil War, since it's really a fascinating story. But for now, we'll just peek ahead and say that in June 1863, West Virginia will be admitted to the Union as the 35th state. After his time in Western Virginia came to an end, Robert E. Lee found himself at a low point. Although Jefferson Davis never blamed Lee for the failure of Confederate arms in Western Virginia, Lee still returned to the Confederate capital with a damaged reputation. He found himself the victim of rumors and negative criticism and publicly hauled over the coals by the Richmond newspapers, which dubbed him Granny Lee and portrayed him as too old or too timid for field command and better suited for desk duty in the Capitol. The Richmond Examiner pronounced that Lee had been, quote, outwitted, outmaneuvered, and outgeneraled, end quote. Nevertheless, despite his damaged reputation, Robert E. Lee's time in Western Virginia had not been a total waste, or so says Emory Thomas in his biography of Lee. Thomas writes that, quote, Lee's three months in the mountains had not been wholly unproductive. Lee had left Richmond in July, a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. He returned a full general, the third highest-ranking officer. Lee also found a horse in Western Virginia. At Sewell Mountain, he noticed a four-year-old gray stallion, then named Jeff Davis, and spoke to the owner about buying the animal. Later that autumn, in South Carolina, Lee did buy the horse, now called Greenbrier, for $200. Lee renamed him Traveler, rode him for the rest of the war, and raised him to the pantheon of war horses. Lee also grew a beard in West Virginia, which he retained for the rest of his life. Appropriately, the beard appeared gray. At the same time, it matched Lee's Confederate uniform and reflected his worries during the campaign. End quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation for this episode is R.E. Lee's Cheat Mountain Campaign by Jack Zinn. You can find all of our book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And don't forget that earlier in this show, uh, Tracy and I also recommended September Blood, The Battle of Carnifex Ferry by Terry Lowry. So this episode, you're getting two book recommendations for the price of one. And speaking of money, Rich and I want to thank Hakun M. from Baltimore and Maria R. from Massachusetts for their donations this past week. Thanks, y'all. And thank you, Maria, for the great note. That made our day. If you enjoy the show and listen to it through iTunes, the next time you're there, please consider leaving us a five-star rating or even writing a review, uh, because that helps other people discover the podcast on iTunes. And thanks to everyone who has left us some great reviews lately. 
We really appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. And last but not least, thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week when Rich and I will look at the Battle of Ball's Bluff. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.